and welcome to another episode of Sermon Seasonings, the podcast of Christchurch Glazeville, where we dig a little bit more deeply into the passage that we looked at on Sunday. My name is David Mears. And I'm Mandy Curley. On Sunday, we dug into Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through to chapter 3, verse 6, and saw once again just how remarkable Jesus is in his uniqueness. Jesus came and he showed just how the Jewish religion had so tied itself to law and tradition that it was incompatible to the coming of the Messiah. And we saw that the Pharisees rejected Jesus and indeed we began to see their plot with the Herodians to get rid of him. Dave, thanks for opening God's word for us. It was my pleasure. Um, what I thought we'd do today, Mandy, is do a three-point podcast. Um, so the first point is, well, I thought we'd have a, a bit of a walk through the text and just um, uh, pick up a couple of the features that maybe we didn't get to dig into and then also that I flagged a little bit on Sunday. So we'll do that. We'll look at the text. Then the second thing I thought we'd do is, is you know, the Pharisees are pretty significant um, uh, characters, I guess you could say, or, or people in, in the life of the New Testament. So I thought we'd do a bit more and talk a bit more in depth about them. And then the third thing is talk about fasting. So there we go, the text, Pharisees, and then fasting. Hold on to your hats, people. Yeah, that's it, hold on to your hats. So the first thing I thought we'd talk about is in the text was one of the things I flagged on Sunday, and that is that if you're listening to the 1 Samuel reading, you hear about David going to the priest at Nob and going to the tabernacle there for the consecrated bread, and you find out there that the high priest who was serving there at the time was a guy called Ahimelech. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read, um, of course, Mark's gospel, when Jesus is talking about the incident, he talks about what took place in the days of Abiathar, the high mm-hmm. priest. And so you can kind of go, what what's the go with that? They're two different names. They both start with the letter A, but I think they're different. So the first thing I want to say about it is that this one's not a textual issue. In other words, it's not that some texts of Mark's gospel had Ahimelech and the other Mm. ones Abiathar. Mark's gospel all the way along has had Abiathar, Mm. not Ahimelech. So why the discrepancy then? Right? Did did Mark record what Jesus said wrongly? Did Mark make a mistake? Uh, did Jesus himself get his facts wrong? I hope that's causing you to breathe in sharply. <laughs> um, or is there some other explanation? Well, it's going to be the third one, isn't it? Yeah. First of all, let's say Ahimelech was the actual priest at the tabernacle of Nob when David got there. Um, but as we remember from our time last year, the, all him and all of the priests that were there soon got massacred by a guy called Doeg the Edomite, and because Saul instigated mm. him, because they gave, you know, they gave um, what they had to David, and Saul said, "David's my enemy, and so I'm going to kill you all." Yeah. Well, what we also might remember back from then is that one, one of the sons of Abiathar escaped. That was, mm. oh, sorry, of Ahimelech mm. escaped, and that was Abiathar. Uh-huh. He fleed from Nob. He joined David. And he actually became his high priest when he was king. And remember, he was with him in the cave there. Mm. And so what we've got as, as David's high priest, over time, he was the more well-known priest of the time. Ahimelech didn't last that long. Abiathar did as David's key high priest. So when Jesus says, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he's speaking of the era not and citing the well-known priest, he's not making a mistake about which person was there at the time. So if you're wondering what's the go there, no, you needn't suddenly go, the Bible's wrong or anything else like that. It all works out. Yeah. The second thing I thought would be interesting to talk about about the text was that we observe what's called an envelope structure. Now, you might remember when we looked at 1 Samuel, again, 
like particularly the story about Abigail and that Abigail's the story of Abigail takes place between two stories parallel kind of looking stories where David had an opportunity to kill Saul but he didn't mm. and um and so we're sort of going you, you've got this envelope structure and you've got you two things that are quite clearly similar on either side it makes you go why is the bit that's in the middle in the middle in the middle and what is how does it inform our understanding of the outside mm. well this is also narrative and Mark does it now we looked at three stories from Mark chapter 2 but they actually are the back half of a sequence that began at the beginning of chapter mm. 2 it's actually a series of five encounters of opposition that begin the story of uh, Israel's opposition or, or um, established Israel's mm. opposition to Jesus and so um, as, I, as I said you've got the incident with the paralyzed person which is the first one mm. and then you've got the incident with the man with the withered hand as the second one as the one that is the fifth one I beg your pardon and so both of them have a, a crowd both of them have a healing that gets delayed it gets separated mm. because there's a teaching point that happens in the middle both of them talk, uh, give a window into the minds of the Pharisees, but what with them still being quiet, and then has a dramatic exit. And so you can see there's there's a similar structure to both of those accounts. And so this is a literary device, a literary that, device. that Mark's using to help us to see something in more detail as yeah. we look at the text. And, and to tie the unit together. So to try and say this is a block which you're meant to observe is a growing pattern and it gets by the end, it's established, yeah. right? So when they walk out and plot to kill Jesus. But it also, if we're using the same sort of thinking, is there something about the one that's in the middle? Well, what is the middle of the five accounts? If these are two of the outsides of the one and five, what's number three? Well, it's interesting that the central one of the five accounts in Mark 2 to 3, 6 is the bridegroom new wine account. Mm. that also seems so all about I am the bridegroom. In a sense, I am God in the presence of his people coming to redeem them. And um, and it includes the feature, the very first time in Mark, where Jesus' passion is alluded to, mm. where the bridegroom will be taken away. And you even get the hint there that the destruction of the old wineskin is going to coincide with the wine's destruction as well as the skin. Mm. And so I think it's quite significant that that's the middle one. It points us to Jesus' identity, not just as the Son of Man but and, and as the bridegroom, but as the one who will actually, um, that there's a, the promise of some sort of taking away, some yeah. sort of breaking that will yeah. happen of, mm. the, of the bridegroom. So I think that's an interesting thing yeah. to observe from them. Yeah. Um, now, the next thing I thought we could do is you might be asking, is there any significance while we're dealing with this last story uh, about the shriveled hand? Uh, is it just that that happened to be the sick person that was there and that, that Jesus needed to heal? Or is there perhaps something kind of um, poetic or, or, or meaningful about it? Because the language is really interesting, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, it's shriveled hand. The Literally, it's... it's um, uh, dry or withered, and it's the kind of uh, language you'd use to talk about if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, the, the white tree of Gondor, right? You're thinking about a, a, a stump, a dried-up plant that, that, is, that is, is, is died. It's actually it's like he had a dead hand. Um, and it, it seems to be something significant about the healing because um, compared to, say, the paralysed man who, again, was unable to do anything, was, was, was powerless, 
It's kind of like a withered branch or tree, a deadness that's brought back to life. When Jesus says, doesn't just say be healed, he says stretch out your hand. It's like like a, if you're imagining a, a plant that suddenly starts to grow sprouts again and shows new shoots. It's it's not just the healing of a hand injury. It's a it's an imagery of of life returning to something that was dry and withered. Which, given what we know that Jesus has come to do, and that illusion there of the the wine being spilt just like mm. the wine skin, it's mm. quite a powerful image. Yeah, as well as the fact that when he challenges the the Pharisees a little later, he said what's lawful to do on the Sabbath, and one of them is to give life. Mm. And there's a sense where even though he's healing a person who's already alive, there is a sense of the giving of life in, in what he does there. So it's a reference to what he's doing. Mm. Um, now, last week we also spoke about the fact that you can often learn about the characteristics of, a, of one of the synoptic gospels, so that's Matthew, Mark or Luke, by comparing how each of them have told the same account and adapted, as we said, Mark's material. Yeah. Um, so what are there any things that we can see here? Well, the answer is yes, they can. In fact, it confirms some of the things we observed from last week. So what when Mark talks about um, Jesus looking around and being angry because of their stubborn hearts, that's neither Matthew or Luke mention that. Mm. It's, a, it's something that Mark focuses, slows down the story to show us what Jesus is feeling. Um, he's also the, one that, the only one that mentions the fact that the Pharisees remain silent. And so you get this Mark's emphasis on Jesus' divine knowledge as well as well as when he said he deliberately calls the man up because he knew, even though he hadn't said so, that they were plotting to use this man as a pretext mm. for getting at Jesus. So again we get this window into Mark's emphasis on Jesus' divine knowledge of people's thinking and, and, and also his emphasis on revealing to us the inner feelings and responses of Jesus. Mm. Um, what you'll find as we read through Mark's gospel is almost – only second or maybe even equivalent to John's gospel, Jesus' divinity as well as his humanity, but especially his divinity is very, very mm. prominent in Mark's gospel, um, even though we see his very human emotions, but but we see him having divine qualities mm. in a way that Mark highlights more than perhaps Matthew or Luke. Yeah. Um, the next thing. Yep. <laughs> let's talk about the Herodians, all right, because I didn't get to say much about them. <laughs> Who on earth were the Herodians? Well, as their name might suggest, there were people who were pro-Herod. They were, and, and so the, um, they were pro the Hasmonean priesthood, which were the people who were the family line in a sense that would, had dominated um, high priestly politics and the office of high priest, um, which means they're also pro-Sadducees because the Sadducees were, were the um, ones in power at the temple and were the priesthood. So the Herodians are pro-Herod pro-priesthood, pro-Sadducee, and pro-Roman. Mm. So you might think, well, that's interesting because the Pharisees were anti-Herod, anti-Hasmonean, anti-Roman, and anti-Gentile. Um, and, and so for them to be plotting with the Herodians, you'd think that was the last bunch of people that they would want to plot with. And, and so the last thing I want to say about our observation of this text is I mentioned this on Sunday, but, but we've really got to feel it, the powerfully ironic... Um, ending and how much that exposes about the truth of the Pharisees. Um, the fact that you've got people who were so offended that Jesus would spend time with sinners and tax collectors and now they're plotting with the people who they collected taxes for. Um, they were uh, 
these sinners who they considered as non, um, as slack Torah keepers. Mm. Well, that's that's the Herodians. They were more than happy to be slack with the Torah. Um, they they were more about what they could they could do and how they could benefit their arrangement. I mean, Herod and the Herod Herodic line weren't even fully Jewish, so it's themselves. Um, and so you you just get this picture of of a, a stunning hypocrisy. Mm. Such that they 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 hate association with sinners and tax collectors, and yet what they will do is go out and quite happily plot with the very people that they were so offended, Good. Jesus, and not just the people, the captains Goodness. of the people who were so offended. And so we've got to see the powerful irony there and what it exposes to us as the final full stop on this is the Pharisees' people. Yeah, yeah, and so that takes us then to our second big point. Uh, which is to focus a bit more on the Pharisees. So we talked last week about we get introduced to the characters in in this account, in this story. And so mm. the Pharisees play a big role mm. uh, in what happens to Jesus. So what do we learn about the Pharisees here? Yeah, we, we, learn, um, we learn a fair bit. And, I'm, and so I'll, I'll teach you a little bit about them. Uh, one of the things I would just say straight is, is a plug. If you're interested in going, I'd like to know more about these things, uh, it's always great. Go out and get yourself a good Bible dictionary because you can say, I'm going to look up the Pharisees and learn a bit about them. And any good, the IVP dictionary will be good. If you really want to dive in, IVP also have a series of dictionaries that, that specifically address periods in, you know, like the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the New Testament, the New Testament, the, sorry, the Gospels, the letters, mm-hmm. even in between the Testaments. So um, if you want to dig deep on things, go get yourself a good Bible dictionary. Also make a really good 21st birthday present. Oh, I received yes. one for my 21st and I still use it. Good, good suggestion, true. Okay, let me first say, what do we need to know about the Pharisees? In the first century, there were a number of key Jewish groups. Um, as I've sort of mentioned, there were these ones that there were priests that were the Sadducees. Now, the Sadducees were associated with the Roman occupiers. They dominated the priesthood and the temple in Jerusalem. Then you had another lot called the Essenes, and they were kind of um, a very isolationist communities, kind of like if you're thinking about the Amish over in America or something mm-hmm. like that. Um, well, the Essenes were even more isolated. Like they're like the ones who were going to buy their compound out in the middle of, of the backwards of America and start a cult. Yeah. Uh, that the Essenes, in fact, they were the Dead Sea community that's, that did the Dead Sea Scrolls. You had another ba- bunch called the Zealots, and they were full of zeal. They they were revolutionaries who who really wanted to try and get rid of Roman um, uh, occupying and, and were willing to do sometimes some uh, questionable things in order to achieve that. Uh, and then you've got the Pharisees. If you want to think about the Pharisees, they were kind of like the Puritans. They were religious conservatives. They weren't as extreme as the Essenes, but they were separatists with respect to the Gentile world. And yet at the same time, and I think we see this in our passage as well, they were politically shrewd, right? And they were prepared to make alliances with other groups, even ones that they disliked and disliked intensely if it achieved their ends, Yeah, which is totally what we see in Mark mm. chapter 3, verse 6, isn't it? They, they dominated the synagogue, so not so much the temple, but the synagogue, and they had significant political power in the Sanhedrin, which was the, the Jewish ruling body. Now, the thing about you might notice, well, that's a whole bunch of groups. Well, they fought like cat and dog. <laughs> so that these groups competed against each other for prominence and power, often quite fiercely. Mm. Um, as one writer once said, they were fueled by the fervour of religious conviction, and so mutual denunciations were harsh. <laughs> they were all sitting there waving their finger at, and, and fighting with one another. 
first century Judaism was deeply divided. If you're wanting to get a picture, and there was not one harmonious place, deeply divided. Um, But the Roman wars later in the century broadly wiped out most of those groups and they just completely sort of fell off the scene. The Judaism that took shape after the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple by the Romans in 70 AD, rabbinic Judaism, has a lot more in common with the Pharisaic tradition than any other. They inherited the tradition of the synagogues and and that is really what Judaism has looked like from then all the way up until now. It's got a Pharisaic heritage um, and in the Pharisaic mindset kind of won the day and was the dominant one. Yeah. Now, the, the history of these bunch, they, they grew out, as I said on Sunday, of the Maccabean revolt against Greek overlords in the 160s BC, and they were saying, this is what we've got to do to get back to back to the law. Yeah. But they've got some characteristics about them that are quite interesting. What is characteristic is their adherence to a body of traditional material. This is the key mm. thing to understand the Pharisees, that their, their traditions were broader than the Bible. And these traditions were handed down by their forefathers and a defined correct behaviour and it also interpreted and also supplemented the actual law of Moses mm. in the Bible. Um, and so if you're trying to think of the Pharisees, do not think of priests. They weren't priests. They were lay people and they were scribes. So it was a scholarly movement and they were aligned against the Sadducees, the priestly Sadducees. That was almost what defined them. Uh, so they were into the food laws, strict preparation of food, ritual cleansing was big, tithing was mm. critical. Um, and... Of course, other characteristic was their non-association with Gentiles. They even had levels of association within their own group, people that were more and less acceptable. Um, They had defined levels of association and they called upon higher standards of ritual purity for their members than would be required of ordinary Jews. And of course, as we saw on Sunday, strict Sabbath keeping. Now, their theology was also quite interesting. So the Pharisees asserted that God could and should be worshipped even away from the temple mm. and outside Jerusalem. And so to the Pharisees, worship consisted not in bloody sacrifices, you know, the practice of the temple priests, but in prayer and in the study of God's law. And so that's why the Pharisees fostered the synagogue as an institution of religious worship outside and separate from the temple. Mm. And I think it's interesting that the synagogue of modern Judaism and um, is is inherited from this, and and has been what's preserved the, the the tradition. And I think from the outsider's point of view, you might have sort of wondered how can Judaism exist if they don't have the sacrifices, they don't have the priests, and they don't have a temple? Isn't that central to what it's all about? Well, the Pharisaic understanding of you don't need that stuff has kind of meant that they've been able to tolerate the absence of the uh, of the temple. Um, and so that's kind of symptomatic of that. So they believed in the immortality of the soul. There's a fam- famous spat where they believed in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees didn't. Because yeah, they were sad, you see. They were sad, you see, and they played <laughs> that off. Um, but the big thing is that the comparison with the Sadducees on top of that is that the Sadducees actually believed that the law of God was what was in the first five books of the Bible and the written law. That was the law. The Pharisees said, no, it's not just that. It's all of these oral traditions that are built up around it, the interpretations that have happened over time that is also the law and is equally applicable. Yeah. So um, you'll you'll see this sort of stuff play out in the Pharisees in in, in Mark. And, and from this point on, Mark's not complimentary about them at all. 
because uh, <laughs> you, you get them plotting with the Herodians that immediately says hypocrite. Um, in chapter 7, they're called hypocrites. In and Mark, that's Jesus who calls them Jesus hypocrites. Jesus who calls them hypocrites, which remember means that you're an actor. You're putting on a face that isn't real to what is underneath. Um, and and so that is what kind of plat, plots through. They even rejoin their plot with the Herodians later on. So, so, But the big message of the Pharisees is that they parade themselves as righteous, but really they're hypocrites. Now, of course, in time, some Pharisees became believers, came to follow Jesus. Um, the Apostle Paul, of course, is the most prominent amongst mm. all of them. And if you want to know about what his mindset was, you could just go to Philippians. You can look at Acts, um, but you can also look at Philippians chapter 3, yeah. where, where Paul looks back on his religious zeal as a Pharisee and he reflects upon the fact that he was striving for legalistic righteousness. And he says, you know what? That is compared to knowing the person of Jesus, which is what we were looked at on Sunday, that stuff is is just rubbish. Yeah. So we'd be mistaken to think that in general they were earnestly seeking to honour God. Um, much of their relating with Jesus was from envy and jealousy. They rated themselves as righteous and everyone not like them as defective. Yeah. And and so I'll just close out this Pharisee section by, by reminding you of Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector because it reveals so much about their pride and what Jesus' verdict on them was. In fact, do you want to read that for I'd us? I'd be delighted. So in Luke chapter 18, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Yeah, it's a powerful reading, isn't it? And you notice how the Pharisee there talks about the fact that he fasts twice a day. So that's a good segue to our third and final section where we actually have a, a look at fasting. Now, um, you know, as you tend to do on a Monday morning, I thought, what will I do? I know we'll look at every reference of fasting and see what we come up with. You'll look, be pleased to know that even though there are an awful lot of references, which you will find all of them in the show notes, we are not going to look at all of them now. You can breathe a sigh of relief and your walk may not be as long as you thought it was going to have to be. All right. Um, so, look, fasting is is extensively referenced in, in the Bible and in, in the Old Testament and it turns up a bit in the New, mostly in the Old Testament. But it's interesting that it doesn't even turn up at all in the patriarchs. So it, the whole idea of fasting doesn't seem to appear in the life of Israel until they're in the land in the book of Judges. And, um, and I... I you know, it's speculation, but you sort of wonder, is there something about um, the, the, the recognition of fasting when you're in the land of milk and honey that God has provided for you and recognising perhaps that you haven't been living in light of the covenant and, and things like that, where, where that's the expression of repentance. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting that it doesn't turn up at all before the book of Judges. Um, but again, it's a recommittal to living God's way when you're in the promised land. And mm. so it's quite an interesting connection there. 
And there's a, a couple of examples that I thought we might look at that are particularly helpful. One of the earlier ones is in 1 Samuel 7. And one of the reasons we picked this is because we've done 1 Samuel, and so you'd be familiar with it. You might remember that at the beginning of 1 Samuel, you've got Eli and his sons, and his sons had corrupted worship of God. Um, so therefore, God enables the Ark of the Covenant to be captured by the Philistines. It then gets brought back after a period of time of teaching the Philistines a lesson, um, then they peek in it and people die. And so then it moves to a place where it stays for about Kiriath-Jerim or something like that, where yeah. it stays for 20 years. This is what, and then straight after that, it's like a pivotal point in the life of Israel under the prophet Samuel where they go, you know what, we're going to recommit ourselves um, to, to God. We're recognising that we now need to live for him. So do you want to read um, that section there for us? This is 1 it. Samuel chapter 7. So the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the Ark of the Lord. They brought it to Aminadab's house on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to guard the Ark of the Lord. The Ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim a long time, 20 years in all. Then all the people of Israel turned back to the Lord. And that's a really critical line. All the people of Israel, it's this recommitment of the nations Mm. after judges and all of that chaos. Mm. So Samuel said to all the Israelites, If you are returning to the Lord with all your hearts, then rid yourselves of the foreign gods and the Asherahs and commit yourselves to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the Israelites put away their Baals, Baals and Asherahs and served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Assemble all Israel at Mizpah, and I will intercede with the Lord for you. When they had assembled at Mizpah, they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. On that day they fasted, and there they confessed, We have sinned against the Lord. Now Samuel was serving as the leader of Israel at Mizpah. So you can see a couple of themes coming up there of of fasting being associated with a recognition that we've gone astray. Um, and that our nation's gone astray for hundreds of years, and so and so they're going. No, we're going to recommit, and and that so there's that aspect of it, um, a, a repentance, but then there's also a wholehearted commitment and mm. dedication that says we're going to block out everything in order to be able to dedicate it, and you also see that that um, uh, the connection with confession and prayer, mm. which is yeah. also a key part of it. Then there's one I thought um, there's there's lots of parts after that, but I thought we might look at the book of Esther because there's a really interesting one there in um, in chapter four. So uh, in the story of Esther, um, there's a, a a bad dude a guy mm. called Haman who who hates a guy called Mordecai, a Jewish man called Mordecai who was in had good reputation. And, uh, and Haman hated the Jews and he used his position of authority with the king in order to be able to get a decree put out that would, would actually lead to the slaughter, the complete genocide of all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire. A serious, serious thing. Um, and so we read from Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and, cloth and ashes and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. So you can see that that is there's the a, a common association of sackcloth and ashes, mm. where where it's it's a, a sense of calamity, impending calamity is going to come upon the nation. And because of that, 
this this fasting and and other signs of of humbling yourselves before God is a way of, of beseeching Him to to see you and hear you and and notice your condition and respond to it, and and so we'll see fasting turn up again in in Esther because Esther calls on her people when Morda she finds out about mm. all of this, she calls on her people to fast because she has she's one of the people who being um, I guess groomed to be a wife mm. of the king of Persia, and so she is a potentially in a position to influence, and so she calls on her people all to fast. She herself fasts. Um, in preparation for her petition to the king. Um, and so um, it, it was a way of saying if we're, we're denying ourselves and asking God, would you would you hear and bless this very, very um, dangerous um, petition that needs to be needs to happen from Esther. And then at the end of the book of Esther, in chapter nine, verse twenty nine to thirty two, it turns up again. and and after the good news of you know um, Mordecai's victory and Haman's defeat, um, a new festival that is is a, a, from this point onwards is a Jewish festival that they adhered to, and fasting is now associated with this new festival, Jewish festival of Purim, where, which commemorates their deliverance from near disaster. And so now anchored in to that festival for time immemorial is going to be fasting as part of that. Um, so you can see national calamity. Communal prayer and pleading, sackcloth and ashes and mourning, and prayer and fasting are again connected. It's amazing how similar, in lots of ways, that account is to what we saw in Samuel just there. Mm, that yeah. there's all those similarities. Of sort of, it's the scale of what's going on that seems to be what draws them, yeah, to to the fast. Like it's it's national calamity. It's not mm. this incident in front of me that's impacting me. Yes, yes, and and another aspect that's that's key about that that is I guess the difference between the two is that the first one is a recognition of of national straying, and then the second one is is as you said um, that the the calamity is what's on view, and and I think we were talking about this earlier that that what what at, the, at its heart is fasting doing, and I I think it is a way of of uh, outwardly showing. And trying to express the genuineness of where your heart is before mm-hmm. God, it's like um, if uh, if we were also talking about if I said please do that, it, it has one effect. If I say please, please do that. Now, does me saying please twice change what I'm asking for? It doesn't, but it's a way of expressing how sincere I am. And so you might think about fasting as being one of those please pleasers. It, it's mm. it's like. Um, I'm, I'm so convicted about this and how important it is that I'm putting it before you, God. Please witness my humility, my humbling before you because I recognise you're the king. Mm. That's fasting if it's done right. Yeah, which I think naturally leads us to Isaiah 58. Yeah, this is a brilliant passage and we want to read a lot of it because um, this is actually God, I guess, pressing, his, um, pressing a nerve a bit and, and exploring this idea of fasting and where it really sits it's almost a commentary on fasting and what it is and and what isn't appropriate about fasting and interestingly i think for our context in mark it ties together fasting sabbath and the promise of feasting in the kingdom to come it's like it's it feels very marking mm. um can i read it can i read it sure. oh, you, oh, you go can read the last dave. one right because I, I i love this passage all right shout it aloud Do not hold back. Raise your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their rebellion and to the descendants of Jacob their sins. 
For day after day they seek me out, they seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right, and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions, and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting you do as you please, and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarrelling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today, and expect your voice to be heard on high. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for people to humble themselves? Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying in sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? when you see the naked, to clothe them, and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here am I. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with a pointing finger, and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves in behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. The Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land, and will strengthen your frame. You'll be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up the age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. If you keep your feet from breaking the Sabbath and from doing as you please on my holy day, if you call the Sabbath a delight and the Lord's holy day honourable, and if you honour it by not going your own way and not doing as you please or speaking idle words, Then you will find your joy in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride in triumph on the heights of the land and to feast on the inheritance of your father Jacob, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's just beautiful, isn't it? cracker of a passage. Because we see what real fasting is Mm. in contrast to the fasts that are all about the person who's fasting. Exactly. And not about the one to whom this is meant to be an offering to. And wasn't it interesting to hear the description of saying of God saying through Isaiah that this is fasting. Fasting is is acting graciously and being generous and showing compassion. In a sense, you're going without because you're giving to mm. others. And that that is actually on the trajectory of what it is to um, show heartfelt repentance and to dedicate yourself to God and be committed to prayer, not necessarily by not eating, although that is a valid way of doing it, but actually by dedicating yourself to service and doing mm-hmm. good for others. And it contrasts, you know, that's what fasting is all about. And then you see what we saw mm. in Mark chapter 2 and 3 with, with the, the hard-hearted yoke adding mm. of, um, you know, the Phar- this is a prophecy against, could be against the Pharisees really, couldn't it? Yeah. 
Um, so I think there's an that shows an interesting big picture of what fasting is really all about in God's eyes. Um, and so maybe that brings us back to our passage. Do you want to read that? Yeah, so in Mark chapter 2, uh, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came up and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. And so I think that's really interesting there because while Jesus doesn't command fasting there, he clearly indicates that a time is going to come when his own disciples are going to fast because he, the bridegroom, will no longer be with them and that's the time that it will be appropriate for them to fast. And when you think about that, I remember reading a commentator on this and and he was reflecting about the fact that um, the reality of the experience of oppression and persecution and suffering that comes with being a follower of the suffering Christ and that is part of the life of the church and, and there's a, not not just, the, in a sense, it's not, not just addressing the moment when the disciples went, this is horrible, Jesus has been taken from us, but even knowing that his spirit is present with us as we experience persecution and hardship in this world, that there is there is a place for um, calling upon God mm-hmm. to see and calling upon God to, to act mm-hmm. and... and um, and, and humbling ourselves before him as, as we do so. Um, but the way we thought we'd finish is actually with this great chapter from Joel chapter 2. And and, and it kind of ties in with the Mark 2 thing. And there's, there's a reference in Joel 2, which is probably a good place for us to end. And it reminds us of the character of God and the attitude of the heart of those who return to him and what, what it needs needs to be. So I read the big one. You, you read this other beautiful passage. Okay, so Joel chapter 2 from verse 12. Even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows, he may turn and relent and leave behind a blessing grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly, gather the people, consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priests who minister before the Lord weep between the portico and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, Lord, Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Call for heartfelt dedication. Well, that's it for our podcast. Don't forget, in the show notes, if you want to explore and do your reading, there's some great passages to look up. They're all written there. I've been Dave. And I've been Mandy. We'll see you next week for more Sermon Seasonings.